You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. And me, Edward Gomez. A few things happening this month. We've had launches of new missions, uh, results from satellites, and uh, intriguing plumes of water from one of Jupiter's moons, uh, which uh, is very exciting. Uh, so starting off with uh, missions that have launched, um, a new mission to Mars, uh, InSight, uh, which uh, I actually forget what the name stands for. I think it's a, a, an acronym, but it's going to do seismology on Mars. Well, I'm quite relieved because it's been at least two weeks since we've had a, a mission to Mars launch. Yeah. Um, so seismology is a, a, a really useful thing if you want to um, send people to Mars. You want to know what the, uh, the structure of the, um, if there's any, any Mars quakes going to happen, how frequent they are, how, what size they are as well. Um, so it, that's a very useful thing. It's also important for learning about the interior of Mars. So Mars, Mars doesn't have um, tectonic plates like we have here. The, the plates move around and cause volcanoes and earthquakes and, and so on here on Earth. On Mars, it doesn't have that kind of structure. Um, but when you do get quakes from maybe small bits moving or from things hitting the surface of Mars and creating um, little mini Mars quakes uh, that will travel around, the way those uh, vibrations, those sound waves, those earthquake those seismic waves travel through Mars tells you a little bit about the interior and that, that, that's how we learnt about the interior of Earth here. Yeah that's right and, and actually it will solve one of the problems that we have which is why doesn't Mars have an atmosphere um, you know that's one of the things that uh, a lot of people think that Mars lost its atmosphere it had some, something that um, I, that stopped it having an atmosphere like Earth has an atmosphere and um, it could be that Mars's atmosphere was irradiated away because it doesn't have uh, a molten core like the Earth does. And the molten core on Earth generates the magnetic field, which helps protect the atmosphere from those high-energy particles that come streaming from the sun, which would rip away the atmosphere. Uh, why doesn't Mars have a molten core? Maybe it, presumably it's smaller, so it cooled down faster. So that's uh, where, where that molten core has gone, is one, one argument, I, I think. Um, but... Uh, yeah, intriguing to, to know about the interior. And also, the, the interior of a planet affects how the planet rotates slightly as well. And they did this with the Spirit rover when that was stuck in sand, uh, I guess a decade or more now, uh, that they, they did some tests of how Mars was seeming to rotate, because that tells you whether the core is liquid or solid. Or Yeah, that's right, whether you've got something at the, the centre that's acting like yeah. a little um, gyroscope um, and the rest is sort of slipping around yeah. it. It's actually a problem that I used to set my second year undergrads, ah. um, but with um, cans instead of Mars. <laughs> well, you can do it with eggs, right? You can take yeah. an egg, spin a, a, a raw egg, and then hard boil an egg and spin that, and they'll spin differently when yeah, you exactly. spin them on the table. Yeah, um, all then, moments of inertia, yeah. if you're interested. But also the, uh, the lack of plate tectonics is why Mars has the largest volcano in the solar system, mm. uh, because unlike on Earth, where you have the hot spot moves uh, underneath or relative to the surface for volcanoes. The, the, a great example is Hawaii mm. uh, that has a single hot spot, but as the, the plate tectonics move the, the, the top layer, the various different islands of Hawaii uh, sprouted up and Olympus Mons didn't have that happen. So it's this ginormous volcano. Yeah, largest volcano in the solar system. Yeah. Um. So, uh, InSight is on its way to Mars. It takes it, um, it gets there um, later this year, I think. Uh, uh, and it's not alone. It's joined by two much smaller satellites, uh, satellites called CubeSats. They're called Mars Cube One, or, or Marco uh, for short. There are two of them, Marco A and Marco B. Uh, and uh, these CubeSats are very uh, common, very popular, used a lot in Earth orbit. 
and they're they're quite an efficient way of doing satellites these days. Yeah, they're very um, they're cubes, so you can put a lot of them in a payload of a rocket. Um, they're they're quite cheap to launch that way, and also you don't particularly have to worry about them when they've served their their lifetime because they will just vaporize as they they enter the atmosphere. Uh, so that's why they're they're quite popular. And actually, there was a um, I think it was the UK SEDS organisation that uh, managed to get sponsorship to launch uh, a CubeSat a few years ago uh, so that students and school kids could could use the data from it, so Earth observation data. Yeah, they're relatively cheap. I mean, a mere a few tens of thousands of pounds to launch or something. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Still not that. You're not gonna... But they have cameras on them. They have like um, very small, basically the type of things that you would have uh, on a, a sense hat on a Raspberry Pi, so things that would have like magnetic field and cameras and things like that. So the smallest CubeSats are about 10 centimetres on a side. So the cubes that size. A lot of satellites are several of those joined together. And Marcos are about the uh, the size of a briefcase. They're six CubeSats all bolted together with things that pop out from solar panels and an antenna to talk to Earth. And their main goal is uh, transferring data, is communications relay from inside when it lands on the surface back to Earth because the, the rovers on the certain the landers on the surface of Mars don't talk to Earth directly. They go through the relay satellites, of which there's quite a few, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's when you think about it, it's a it's you know, I don't get very good mobile reception in my house. You imagine a rover trying to communicate with Earth. They need something to boost their signal. And so it makes sense to have more opportunities to, to do that. And the only reason that we've got such good telecommunications on Earth is because we have so many satellites. Mm. So putting more satellites and cheaper satellites up on the surface of Mars can only be a good thing. Mm. The, the relay satellites of Mars Odyssey, which has been there since 2001, hence the name, 2001 uh, Space Odyssey, uh, and Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has then been there for over a decade now uh, as well. So they're, they're fairly old satellites, so you have to wonder if, if any, either of those broke. We've got the Europeans, um, uh, Mars Express as well, of course, which is a relay satellite joined now by um, the Trace Gas Orbiter and an Indian mission as well, Chandrayaan. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of missions that are... Are there, but if any of those break, then we might lose the ability to communicate with the rovers on the ground. And, be... and also, Marco is very, very cheap, as you yeah. said. You know, it's it's going to be more expensive to launch Marco to Mars, but still, the it's a much lighter payload. It's a much smaller and potentially a less complex orbiting satellite, and so you could manufacture them in bulk and send them up, and you could have a fleet of them. They the lifetime is. I think around 18 months around the Earth for a CubeSat. I don't know how that is affected by bolting more than one together. And presumably around Mars it's going to be longer because Mars' atmosphere is a lot thinner, so they're going to um, they're going to survive a bit longer. They're not going to uh, burn up as quickly. Yeah. Well, if they make it to Mars, um, there's always a chance they, they break en route, uh, then um, we'll hopefully get some data sent back from inside. It's an, a useful test as to whether this is a, a future model for communications. Uh, and uh, as you say, a relatively cheap, inexpensive thing to do uh, relative to the, the InSight mission as a whole. Uh, with other missions, we've had a mission that's been up there for a few years, now Gaia, which is looking at uh, the positions and velocities of stars as we see them in the, in the sky. Uh, Gaia has had its second big data release. Now, astronomers, I think it's fair to say, were very, very excited about this <laughs> data release. I'm not sure whether... Um, anyone else in the world is particularly excited about it. But um, why, why do you think astronomers, why were astronomers so excited about it? Well, so this, th- there is a wealth of information about stars that we haven't had before. And uh, astronomers like, if, if you see one thing, 
then you can uh, you have a rare case. If you have two things and they look similar, then you can infer some conclusions. But you want many, many things which are all similar, and then you can have a really good model of some piece of physics. And so that's what Gaia will do. You'll be able to categorize stars into all sorts of different ways and learn a lot more about them um, from their position, their movement, their color, and, and all of that sort of thing. And one of the things that this Gaia data release has revealed is uh, a class of star called a white dwarf, which is the ultimate end point of our sun. It'll end its life uh, in billions of years' time by just shrugging off its outer layers, exposing the very, very hot core, which won't have any thermonuclear reactions going in, uh, going on inside the very core anymore. It'll just ca- gradually cool down over the rest of the age of the universe. And we've only, prior to this data release, known about a couple of hundred of those. And a couple of hundred sounds a lot, but because they're all over the place, it's very hard to study them. This data release in Gaia has has revealed 14,000 of them. Which is Uh, quite a lot more. That's a lot, lot more. And because those stars then go on to not be these inert things, but if they're in pairs, in binary systems... Uh, they can pull material off their neighbour and explode. And this is a Type 1a supernova. And a Type 1a supernova has been used for uh, various different things, mostly for establishing how far away things are, uh, because people believe them to to be a, a fairly constant brightness or have them, their peak brightness was constant, which is in doubt these days. It was one of the things which was used to demonstrate dark energy. Mm. But also um, these things exploding uh, when they're uh, when they're in these binaries and they leach material off their neighbour, then end up as neutron stars. And if we know more about the, the population of neutron stars, how many of them, how frequent we expect can expect them, then that ha- also has implications for the amount of gravitational wave events that we can find. So that's just a, a, t- a very small glimpse of one very small aspect of having this enormous collection of data yeah and, and now the now 14,000 white dwarfs are known as, as you said there's a huge amount can be done with that knowledge and go and studying them in, in, in more detail in total so in the data release uh this second data release it reached one a couple of years ago uh there are uh, over one and a half billion stars with their position and brightness uh, monitored there are over a billion of them with their how fast or how far away they are uh, and whether they're moving slightly on the sky something's called their, well, their distance is measured uh, very accurately uh, and a huge number of other things we've we've measured about these uh, these stars indeed such as whether they're, whether they're wobbling because of exoplanets or whether they're varying with brightness um, and, and what, what their size might be and so on so uh, a huge uh, huge reservoir of data for astronomers to be looking at for uh, years to come and undoubtedly there'll be more data releases so yeah uh, expect astronomers to get very excited in another <laughs> few years uh, as well Okay, so that's uh, Gaia and what to do with uh, and, and all the data it's producing. But w- one of the problems with astronomy these days is having all this data. And there's um, two similar stories have come out recently um, about something called machine learning or also something called artificial intelligence. Um, not to do with robots driving cars or, or you know, ordering you a haircut or any of the other things that have been in the news uh, recently. Yes, but it is related. It is I mean, the, these, are, these are all machine learning applications, yeah. real-world applications of machine learning, and, and it's very, very close cousin deep learning. Uh, so this is what happens when you, you give... You, you have a machine learning algorithm, and it's a little bit of a black box, but you, you want it to do a particular task. And then 
to get it to do the task, you give it examples of that task uh, without necessarily giving it too much information about the type of things that you think it should be looking for. You let the machine decide. And so you give it a large number of these tasks or a large amount of what's called training data. And, and then the machine comes up with uh, its own model for what it should expect if you gave it something unexpected. And so normally you have uh, millions of cases where you know what the outcome is and you reserve a small portion of those and uh, you pass a few million through and you leave, say, 100,000 um, where you know the outcome but you don't show the machine those in the, uh, while you're training it. And then once you've trained it, you then put the ones that you know the result in and if you get the result that you expect, then your machine has learned. Um, so astronomers have done this uh, with two different things, uh, with asteroids and with extrasolar planets. Uh, the extrasolar planets, the task that the machine had was to try and work out uh, when you have a solar system that could survive. So there are various different things that could mean that a solar system doesn't survive. And what I mean by that is, do the planets all get knocked out uh, of their orbit? And there are two main factors that can do that. The presence of another star and the presence of giant planets. So in our solar system, we've got four giant planets, but we're, we're dominated by Jupiter. And actually, if you, if you try and simulate that, it's very, very difficult. Mm. Jupiter's influence will knock the other planets out and there, a there, lot of the time. There are some models of the evolution of the solar system that, that say that it, it, there may have been a fifth giant planet, maybe another, another something else like Uranus and Neptune that got knocked out early on. Yeah, that's uh, right, yeah. And, and Jupiter will migrate closer to yeah. the sun and, and affect things like that. And we know that Jupiter has a big effect on the asteroid belt. Uh, it moves asteroids in uh, orbits that aren't more or less circular uh, in, in ones that bring them very, very close to the Earth. So um, this is something that, that we want to know, not only from the point of view of what happens to the solar system, and you know we'll be long dead and gone by the time that's a problem for us, but as more extrasolar planet systems appear, we want to see, well, actually, how do they form? Because mm. it's very difficult for astronomers to, to form planets on a computer and make sure that that solar system then then is is one that is stable enough to survive to the age that we see them in out in the field. Each simulation takes a, a long time to run, of course. And, yeah, and they that's have, right. Yeah, so you, you can have one end result of the thing we observe and, and many possible starting conditions that, that that ended up with that result. So it's, it's a very useful way of testing uh, testing that. And the idea here is that now they've tested it with a few million examples of, of, of simulation that the the team have, have controlled and know the outcome of. Now when there's a new planet discovered or a new planetary system discovered, maybe by TESH, the NASA satellite that, that launched last month and so on, uh, they can just immediately throw that into this machine learning algorithm and it what spits out how that system might have formed, I guess. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's uh, because it's now the hard work has been done, you don't have to run a simulation to try and find the, the parameters you just go to your machine learning algorithm and it doesn't actually have to run the simulation because it it has so much experience based on the millions of simulations that it's seen i suppose even if it gave you three possible outcomes you'd only have to run three simulations rather than another thousand to yeah exactly yeah. yeah and and the other story is about asteroids and uh this is very very different in nature this is how or what the best deflection method for an asteroid is so imagine an asteroid is hurtling towards the earth what do we do 
We only get one shot at it in real life. Uh, and do we throw something at it that will knock it off course? Do you explode a, a nuclear bomb uh, so that that alters its course? Uh, explode the bomb very close to it, not mm. on Earth. And Or do you use something called a gravity tractor, which is uh, fl- flying a spacecraft very close to the asteroid, and the gravitational pull of the spacecraft pulls the asteroid off its off its course Mm. and which of those would have the best effect and so many many different uh, asteroid paths sizes velocities were fed into this machine learning algorithm and now uh, there the 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 team who did that have a set that if we did see a potentially hazardous asteroid they could say right these are the parameters what should we do out of those uh, all the different scenarios that uh, uh, all the different deflection scenarios that we've given you i think when i first looked at this i, I thought well they've given it millions of, of different sets of asteroid um parameters so its orbit and its distance and its size and and, and so on um how, isn't that all the hard work but of course there's so many different variables that go into this including you know at what time of year we discover it as to whether we can actually launch close to it and, and yeah that's right and, and also the uh, the asteroid might be a weird asteroid it might be an asteroid that's not a single body it might mm. be a collection like a, a gravel asteroid mm. which uh, some people have discovered in the past so it's uh yeah there's there's so many other things about asteroids that aren't just its its velocity its mass and its size mm. So it's solving uh, very, very difficult problems using the power of uh, machines to do all the hard work for us. Yeah, that's right. The best use of machines, I suppose. Now, one of the challenges with uh, analysing data from astronomy or any uh, study, really, is that to some extent you have to know what you're going to look for. Now, now and again, we're surprised and we see something that is really obvious. And this happens uh, with the Cassini mission going around Saturn, that it found this plume of material spewing from the little moon Enceladus, the fountains of Enceladus. Uh, and then astronomers went and thought, is there something else going on maybe around Jupiter? It's got, also got an icy moon called Europa, um, and that had been studied by previous satellites, and maybe hints at seeing some plumes. Um, now, uh, result out uh, very recently, um, a study of old data from the Galileo satellite, which was the late 1990s, has shown that Galileo probably flew through this plume of water coming out of Europa. Um, this is decades old data that's been reanalyzed. Uh, so now we know what to look for, uh, gone and found it, which is quite cool, really. Yeah, I think that's uh, amazing. From the mid-90s, this data, um, which everybody at the time thought, oh, we've just got junk, has actually proved not to be, potentially not to be junk, but actually really critical information about uh, two things that were seen as being unrelated, but actually Mm. could be very, very similar in two different parts of the solar system around two different planets. Mm. Galileo flew very close, a couple of hundred miles of the surface of uh, of Europa and they found something weird happened with something called its magnetometer and its plasma instruments which were measuring the magnetic field and the charged particles flying past and this blip was interpreted as being um, as you say just something weird with the instruments uh, but now simulations have shown that actually if there had been a plume it would have caused this kind of effect and uh, so I'm able to narrow that down why, why is finding a, water, a plume of water coming out of Europa interesting though I mean Jets of water coming out of moons, is that important? Well, it's, uh, it goes back to the search for life, really. And uh, when, 
there were plumes coming out of Enceladus, people were saying, well, that the Jupiter and Saturn are way too far away from the sun to be heated by the light of the sun. Uh, really, the, 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 the zone of habitability around our sun is sort of between the orbit of Venus and Mars, mm. and they're way too far away for that. But if you've got some, uh, some hot springs, you could have life, aquatic life, forming in and around the hot springs of a planet like that. And if they're shielded from the, the cold, they've got a blanket, an icy blanket around the moon, then um, you just see these hot plumes escaping. You could have um, something very, very interesting, very, very interesting conditions. Particularly Enceladus, I think there was organic or proto-organic materials that were seen inside the plumes as well. So, or, so not directly the signs of life, mm. but things that we would expect to see if you saw life. Yeah, the, one of the prerequisites for forming life as well, yeah. these, these, these kind of molecules. Uh, now, Europa is known to have sort of salty materials on its surface, so it's thought that these plumes already, that any water welling up from the, the interior of the moon uh, has, is in contact with some rocky core to the moon, much like the sort of the black smokers on the, the base of the, the, the bottom of deep sea trenches that were discovered here uh, on Earth a, a few decades ago. 40 uh, years 40 ago. 40 years ago. Um, as you say, very uh, rich environments uh, for life. It's certainly going to be an exciting uh, thing to go and find out more about. And, of course, we're, we're going to go and do that. Yeah, that's right. There are a few more missions coming up uh, which will have a look at the, um, the giant planets, um, particularly Jupiter. So we've got uh, the uh, European Space Agency mission JUICE mm-hmm. coming up. It's the uh, Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. I'm sure we'll probably get another name by the time it launches, I imagine. Uh, yes. Um, and that's due to be launched in 2022. Yeah. And there's also the NASA mission Europa Clipper, which coincidentally is also due to be launched in 2022. And this is just, they're, they're launched at the same time because there are particular launch windows when it's good to then go and get to Jupiter. I yeah, that's right. Um, it's, it's not necessarily a, a coincidence. Um but the, uh, these are going to go and study various things about the moons uh, of Jupiter. Um, the, the European Space Agency mission, the ESA mission, is going to mainly go and study Ganymede, um, which is the la- a larger moon, but it will hopefully fly past Europa. It's not a very nice place to send a spacecraft, though. Jupiter's magne- magnetic field is uh, not friendly to um, orbiting oh. spacecraft. So. Yeah, and you know that's when you think there's a lot of electronics on these things... Um, I don't know how they do it. I think when the Galileo mission in the 1990s ended, it had basically run out of all, it, all its instruments had gradually died. There was basically nothing left uh, <laughs> working because it had got fried. And the Juno mission, which is currently studying Jupiter, has a limited lifetime because it goes on very long orbits and sweeps past Jupiter and then goes and heads away again to spend most of its time a long way away. Um, so, it's, But it's only going to do maybe 20, maybe 50 orbits of Jupiter because v- gradually its instruments will get fried by the radiation. Yeah. Um, which is not a, not a very friendly place. But those missions are going to be very exciting to follow along when they launch in maybe four or five years. I guess they might get pushed back a, a, a little bit. These things not normally uh, get delayed a, a touch, um, yeah. it's fair to say. Um, and when they come out results, um, I'm sure we'll... No doubt, trying to uh, update everyone with what those results are. That's it for this month. If you want to know some more about uh, the machine learning stories, then go to spacescoop.org. Of course, you can find this episode and past episodes at pythagastro.uk. Until next month, goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) 
You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm. <laughs>